Praise be to God for his grace by which he elects us. Praise be to God for men like Isaac Watts who had penned words about the beautiful, gracious, and sovereign work of God's election. This morning, we're going to be looking at God's word in the book of 1 Samuel. Before we turn there, I want to ask if you've ever been in those moments. Perhaps, students, consider the following scenario. You've been in a class in which you have passed the first exam really well. And uh, there might be some students here saying, Pastor, I don't know what you're talking about. But imagine that that happened, if that never happened to you. Imagine that that would happen to you. And you feel confident about taking the second exam. But when the time comes for the second exam, uh, you are surprised that it did not go as well as the first. The success of the first exam did not translate to the success of the second exam because you were a bit overconfident from the success of the first. Or imagine you've been in the workplace and you've had a difficult project. You knew it was difficult. You put your effort for it. You focused on it. You did your best. And the Lord helped that you finished it well. But then came another project, much smaller, much less challenge. And because of your overconfidence that you've built up from the previous big challenge, you end up fumbling through in accomplishing a much smaller task than before. Having success in the past or going through big challenges in the past can prepare us for the future to do well. But sometimes those past successes can also create in us an attitude of perhaps cockiness, overconfidence, and we think we have it. We think we got this. We become less vigilant of what's in the present or what's ahead. We put our past success on and put our autopilot on and we just start cruising. This is David's challenge in the chapter we're about to read in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I invite you to open God's word to 1 Samuel chapter 25. As you turn there, it might be helpful to remind ourselves of what has gone on in the previous chapter. We have taken a two-week break from this series in 1 Samuel. So let me remind you where we've been. In chapter 24, David had an opportunity to revenge against King Saul. He was even pressured by his men to kill Saul. He had the opportunity to do so thinking that perhaps this was God's way of giving Saul into David's hands. But David refused to kill the Lord's anointed, King Saul. And through that refusal to take vengeance in his own hands, God brought Saul to tears and to recognize and acknowledge, finally, that David is the better king. The one that God has chosen to rule over his people. 
And the chapter closed with Saul asking for protection for his family's name from David. A great reversal. The Saul who persecuted David gets to the point of asking for protection from, king, from the future king David. This was a high moment in David's life. But by sparing his life to come to acknowledge that truly David is the better king, the more righteous king. This was the high moment of David's life. And against that high moment comes chapter 25. Let's listen to the events in chapter 25. Here is God's word for us. 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal. And greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men. And they will tell you. Therefore. Let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered. He answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with a baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. 
Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of two, and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sheaves of parched grain and hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came downward toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belonged to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not know the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, truly, by the morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. 
Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil, the evil of Nabal, on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts? Let's pray. Father, would you speak to our hearts in a way that we can hear your voice? I pray that you would strengthen me in the proclamation of your word. And I pray that you would soften us in the hearing of your word. I pray this in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. In chapter 24, David knew he should not kill and avenge himself against Saul, the Lord's anointed. But now, in chapter 25, his vigilance on the Lord went down, and thus he thought he should take revenge against a worthless, foolish man. Chapter 25 takes us away from the pursuit of Saul after David and changes the scene to David seeking to pursue Nabal. The chapter could be, 20, could be summarized in this way, when tempted, Keep remembering the Lord. When tempted, keep remembering the Lord. The story that we have before us, the passage, uh, could be broken down in, in three moves. Watch out for foolish responses, point number one. Point number two, consider a wise intervention. And point number three, wait for divine reversals. Let's look at each of these three moments in the story as we learn how David is challenged in his 
wrong pursuit of Nabal. Watch out for foolish responses. The author wastes no time telling us about this character, this new character in the book of 1 Samuel by the name of Nabal. He wastes no time to tell us about Nabal's foolishness and worthlessness, even though he was a very rich man. From early on, the author tells us that he was harsh and badly behaved in verse 3. And then a few verses later, he is described as full of folly and a worthless man. How sad to be rich, yet full and worthless. Riches don't make you wise. Riches don't make you worthy. The tension in the story begins when David sends some of his men to Nabal at his house at the time when he was shearing his sheep, which for us, what that means is he was shaving off all the wool from about 3,000 sheep. That's a lot of wool to harvest. That's an abundance of resources. If you will, this is the time to, to cash in the investment. On such a day, David sends his men. David and his men, on their own initiative, have been helping out Nabal's servants to care for them, to protect them. And David is wondering, would Nabal return a favor of giving us some food supplies? It was also a day of feasting. It was also a day of celebration. We don't know exactly what that day was, but we're told that it was a day for feasting. So perhaps the, the men of David and David think, wow, here's a feast coming. We don't have any supplies. Uh, could we go to Nabal and see if he would be willing to share some? This is not a forced redistribution of wealth. This is not even a, an ask for a handout. David is asking for a, an exchange of favors. Hey, I've, I've helped your men. Would you would be willing to share some from what you have with our men? But Nabal refused. He not only refused the request, but he insulted David and demeaned him. Look at verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Now it is hard to imagine that a man as rich and powerful as Nabal had not heard about David. Remember in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, everybody knows about David. Uh, there was a full folk tale. Uh, the women of Israel were singing. Da Saul killed the thousands. David killed the ten thousands. And remember, it was not only the Israelites who were singing that throughout the land, even the Philistines in the land of Gath. When David went to Achish, the king of Gath, even the Philistines recognized who David was. And even the Philistines knew this is the guy about whom that song was sung. So to imagine that somehow Nabal was totally just ignorant out of lack of information about who David was is unlikely. 
plus Nabal's wife, Abigail, knows about David. She apparently knows that he's going to be the next king. It's not like news about David escaped Nabal's family. Oh no, Nabal here is not saying, who is David? I've never heard of him. It's not for lack of information that Nabal asks, who is David? It's not out of ignorance that Nabal asks, who is the son of Jesse? Oh no, he asks this in an insulting way, in a demeaning way. Nabal's response is foolish, not because he's genuinely ignorant, but because he's willfully ignorant and demeaning to the man God has appointed as his king. The foolishness of, da of Nabal's questions are echoed today as well. When people might wonder about God, who is God? Why should I listen to him? What gives him the right to ask of me, of my possessions, of my rights, of what I have? The foolishness of thinking that all we have is our own. How foolish of, of Nabal and how off track he was of assessing David. But as foolish as Nabal was, he's not the only one who responds foolishly in the story. The other character who responds foolishly is David. David's foolishness is subtle and easily overlooked. When David heard how Nabal responded to his servants, David took two-thirds of his army to overtake Nabal. In verse 13, we read, David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. There's no asking of David from the Lord what he should do. David assumes that his immediate response, his immediate reaction is the right reaction. A few verses later, the narrator tells us, what was going on in David's mind as he and his men were heading towards Nabal to kill him. Verse 21 and 22. Now David had said, this is what's going on in his mind. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belonged to him. Does this sound familiar? Do you remember who else attempted to kill everyone in a household and in a town earlier in this book? Saul did. Remember the massacre at Nob? Well, in today's passage, David is tempted to act like Saul. To kill every male in Nabal's house simply because Nabal did not return a favor and instead insulted David. Now, it's true that Nabal acted foolishly. 
and harshly. And that is not a valid reason for him to, to speak like he did for David. But even though there's no valid reason for Nabal to treat David the way he did, it does not give David the right to kill Nabal and all his men. Yet this is what David set his mind to do. And David even invoked God's punishment on himself if he did not revenge against Nabal and all his male servants by the next morning. But David isn't a big surprise. The Lord was involved in this event, but not to support David in his plans to avenge himself, but instead to stop David in his tracks. Prior to this, David had endured tons of threats from King Saul. But in this chapter, he could not overlook an insult from a worthless man. As the underdog in the fight with Saul, David knew how to remain humble. But in this little conflict with Nabal, the no-position guy, he just was rich, but had no other authority beyond that, the king-to-be treats Nabal as the one who gave him a big ego hurt, a big insult to him. What do you do when you find your mind irritated and inflamed by what others have done to you or what they have said to you? Do you seek to get back at them, to find some way of hurting them back? Are you in those situations where with certain people you know you shouldn't respond back? You shouldn't react back in anger. So, for example, parents, you know you shouldn't react bad to your boss who says something unfair to you. You, uh, you retaliate against your boss at work, you're going to be in trouble. You know that. But you come home and your child says something that irritates you and you have less trouble responding with anger at your child. There are times when we know how to respond in what is politically correct situations. And we know how to not respond poorly. But then there's those lesser moments, those issues and challenges that seem smaller. And in those moments, we're caught off guard and we respond sinfully. And you might say, I would never kill someone for insulting me. But would you retaliate in other forms of anger or other forms of revenge against those who insult you? The narrator starts this story by telling us of Nabal's folly and harshness. But the narrator's aim is to help us see the folly and harshness of another, of David himself. In this moment, David was tempted to take the path of Saul, trying to vindicate himself. It's not surprising that Nabal would act the way he did. His very name was a reflection of his character. But it is surprising to see that the man after God's own heart, 
the man whom the Lord chose to be the next king of Israel would stoop so low and be so vulnerable to respond in this way, to act foolishly and harshly against Nabal. So point number two, consider a wise intervention. We have looked at the foolishness, the responses of both Nabal, but also particularly of David. But let's look at a wise intervention. Consider a wise intervention. When Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about how Nabal responded to David and what David was planning to do, she quickly intervened. Abigail's speech to David and her gesture of bringing a a gift to him and of speaking to him uh, become the, the turning moment in the story. It's the climax of the tension that was building up in David's heart. Abigail's speech is recorded in verses 24 through 31. And really, it's the, it's the climax in the story. Abigail is not covering up for Nabal's folly. She knows she cannot change her husband. Even his name is a reflection of her character. While Nabal's folly is hopeless, Abigail's hope to persuade David to turn away from his plans to destroy Nabal. That's what her hope is. And notice what is Abigail's argument that persuades David to stop. She makes, she mounts a, several claims in this response. But there is a red thread that goes through each of the claims in Abigail's argument. And it's this. David, remember that God is working for you. David, remember that God is working for you. We see five references in Abigail's response to David. Five references to the Lord. I don't want to see, I want to help you see it. If you have a Bible, just follow along in these verses. Verse 26. Abigail said, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. What, what is the Lord working for David? The first thing that Abigail says the Lord is working for David is to restrain David from killing Nabal. (laughs) David thought that the Lord is with him, working for him to punish David if he doesn't revenge against Nabal. And Abigail says, no, David, the Lord is working for you to keep you from revenging. Have you ever considered that the Lord can be with you to keep you from what you're planning to do? Not just to help you do what you had planned to do, the Lord could be with you to restrain you from doing what you were planning to do. A second reference that Abigail makes to David, to the Lord before David is verse 28. She says, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Abigail reminds David in the second instance That the one who will build David's dynasty is not David, but the Lord. What a promise. David should not be worried about Nabal's family and taking out his family simply because Nabal insulted David. David should remember that the Lord will build 
a sure house for David, a royal dynasty. Third reference to, to the Lord is in verse 29. Abigail said to David, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Now, how did Abigail know that someone is pursuing David? I don't know. She just knew that David, and David is in the season of being pursued by King Saul. And, and then Abigail reminds David, you are being cared for by the Lord himself. Another way to say this would be, David, it doesn't matter who is pursuing you. What matters is who cares for you. You are in the care of the Lord. Friends, do you ever find yourself worrying about who or what is against you? What seems unfair to you or being wronged by others? Do you feel consumed by such thoughts? Abigail's response for us today, the equivalent of that would be, don't focus on what you have going against you. Remember in whose care you are, in the care of the Lord. A fourth reference that Abigail makes to the Lord, to the Lord in the speech for, uh, for David is in verse 30. She says, And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel. Notice she says, not if the Lord will do this for you, but when. What a difference. What a difference. Abigail realizes that the one she is speaking to is the one whom the Lord has called and promised to be the king. Abigail had the wisdom to realize that David was indeed God's authority over his people coming in the future time. So her advice to him could be stated in this way, David, don't act based on how foolish people treat you today. Act based on how God will honor you as king one day. And when God will honor you as king of his people one day, why would you want to have this stain on your hands of shedding blood without cause? Why would you have the stain of this massacre by which you are simply trying to vindicate yourself against this foolish man? Here's a restating of that principle for us today. Don't act based on how people treat you today. Act in the present based on what God has promised to do for you in the future. What a challenge. What a challenge for Abigail to, to speak to the next king of Israel and challenge him, don't act based on the foolishness of today's people. Act in light of what God will do for you to be the next king. And finally, the fifth reference to the Lord is in verse 31. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, remember your servant. Instead of being concerned with how foolishly Nabal has treated David in this instant, Abigail tells David, David, consider how well the Lord will deal with you in the future. And when the Lord will deal well with you in the future, don't forget what I've said to you. Don't forget 
your servant. Friends, do you tend to treat people based on how they treat you today? Or even worse, do you tend to treat people today based on how they have treated you in the past? Consider treating them instead based on how you want God to treat you in the future. Consider how God will treat you and deal with you in the future. And notice how David responds to Abigail. After mounting five claims on how the Lord is working for David, after mounting these five claims, David responds the following to Abigail in verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. By the way, salvation, working salvation with my own hand is another phrase for vengeance. Before David blesses Abigail for her discretion to confront him and to stop him, David blesses the Lord. Did you notice that? David blesses the Lord. David acknowledges that the one who caused this wise intervention to stop him from sinning is the Lord. But the Lord used people to bring about this wise intervention. The Lord sent Abigail to intervene in David's path to carry out this massacre against Nabal. Again, every reader can figure out that Nabal's foolishness is clear and obvious. Responding to God's elect king in such a demeaning way was a serious insult. Yet the one whose foolishness must be stopped is not Nabal's, but David's. David, is in this episode, is starting to act like Saul. And the Lord would not let David take the path of Saul. The king the Lord is preparing and raising up for his people is supposed to be such a great contrast to Saul that the Lord prevents David from acting like Saul. And the Lord is telling David, David, don't ever go that route of Saul. Nabal's folly is not right. But that does not mean that David gets a pass at reacting out of line and like Saul in shedding blood. Friends, have you ever considered that the folly of other people or their insults against you does not give you a pass to respond sinfully in return? When others act foolishly and hurtfully against you, it is not merely they who need to be stopped in their tracks, but you as well. And in this chapter, Abigail cannot stop Nabal's folly, but she seeks to stop David from his folly of committing sin in response to, Dave, to Nabal's foolishness. And the point in the second major move of the story is the king whom God raises does not respond sinfully to the sin of others. 
the sin whom God raises, the, the king whom God raises, does not respond sinfully to the sin of others. So far in this book, David has been a, a foreshadowing of Jesus in so many ways. Here is an example where he's getting off track. And the Lord would not let David do that. The Lord is correcting David, restraining him, because the Lord is right now setting up a pattern of the righteous king whom God's people really need and deserve. It is David who needs right now to be saved from his foolishness, not Nabal. Friends, have you considered that God often uses people to bring about wise interventions in the paths of others who are committed to act sinfully? Consider what courage Abigail had to intervene in David's path. Perhaps it was not courage. Perhaps it was an act of desperation. And perhaps both. What wisdom in her words, however, not to appeal to selfish emotions, not to appeal to manipulation, but to help David turn his attention to what the Lord was doing and acting for David. What wisdom in this woman to challenge David not to act based on the present circumstances, but based on David's future identity. He may be insulted now, but one day he will be king. Act today on what you will be in the future. Let me ask you, friends, are you finding, are you finding your identity based in what people say about you today? Or do you base your identity based on what God has promised to do for you in the future? Have you considered that you may be a means, the Lord may want to use you to restrain someone else from sinning? This is one of the commitments of our church membership. Here's one of the vows that we as members of this congregation, those of us who are members of this congregation, make to one another in joining the church. Vow number two in our commitment for membership says, we will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other, forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up, exercising watchfulness over each other, and admonishing one another when necessary. Oh, friends, it takes a wise heart not only to admonish well when necessary, but also to hear well when one is being admonished. Friends, when you are admonished by other godly people, do you bless the Lord for sending them to you to stop you from your tracks of acting sinfully? What a humility on David's side at this moment to bless God for sending Abigail to stop him. As one Bible teacher put it, it is a mark of sincere and genuine godliness to be not less thankful for being kept from sinning than from being rescued from suffering. Let me read that again. It is not it is a mark of sincere and it is a mark of sincere and genuine godliness to be not less thankful for being kept from sinning than from being rescued from suffering. 
David blessed Abigail not for the generosity of her gifts, but for the discretion she had in stopping him from his sin. Abigail blessed David not with what she brought for him, but with what she stopped him from doing. And I wonder, my dear friend, if you find it a greater blessing when people give you gifts or when people stop you from sinning. Do you bless God for the people he blesses you with in your life to keep you from acting in sinful ways? This is why it's such a blessing to be a part of a congregation that takes seriously the command to love each other well, to be engaged with each other's lives sufficiently that we can give oversight over each other, and when necessary, to admonish one another. It is one of the greatest blessings the Lord can give you. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we encourage you to, to find a church that you can join and be committed to and worship the Lord together and link arms with those believers to follow Jesus together. You cannot do that by yourself. Now, we certainly would love for you to be a part of this congregation. And we encourage you to consider. But if the Lord were to lead you to another church, another gospel-preaching, Bible-saturated church, we hope that you would go there and not just attend there, but join there. Whether it's here or in another church, the Lord has His people so designed to, to be committed. And part of that commitment is to love one another well enough to consider admonishing each other when necessary. It is a great blessing from the Lord. It is a bigger blessing than just receiving gifts from each other. And David gets this blessing now. This is what's encouraging and exciting about David at this moment. He realizes what a blessing Abigail is for him in this moment. Not for the gifts she brought him, but for having him stopped in his tracks of acting sinfully. Children, do you bless God for your parents? Even in the moments when your parents are acting like those who are stopping you in your tracks from acting foolishly. Believers, do you bless God for those godly friends who have the courage to bring up a sin issue in your life and call you to stop in your tracks? Do you have such godly friends in your life who love you well enough to speak to you like this? Do you bless the Lord for the spiritual leaders that He encourages you to have, to encourage you and to admonish you when necessary so that you may not walk in the way of sin? Consider a wise intervention. And if you don't have people in your life who have the courage to do that, ask the Lord for those kind of people. You need them. I need them. But point number three in the story is wait for a divine reversal or wait for divine reversals. David heeds the wise intervention of Abigail and stops from pursuing Nabal to kill him. And then within a short span of time, he finds out then 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. But notice what kind of feast Nabal had after the visit 
from David's servants. In verse 36, when Abigail comes to Nabal to try to confront him as well and tell him what had happened, Abigail finds Nabal feasting and so drunk that she couldn't talk to him. But notice in verse 36, what kind of party this man was throwing. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. When David sent his, his servants to Nabal to ask for some food supplies, this is the feast that Nabal was preparing. He was preparing to have a feast like a king. What a description. It's a description of extraordinary lavishness, extraordinary abundance. And in a book that is very interested about what happens to the kings of God's people, it's interesting that Nabal is characterized by the author as the man who is pursuing to party like a king. But 10 days later, this man falls dead. And who's, who's the cause of his death? It's not David. It's the Lord. The Lord struck Nabal down. The man who wants to party like a king ends up dying very shortly. And at hearing this, we as readers cannot stop thinking how this whole book began with Hannah's prayer presenting the God who brings about great reversals, who turns the head on those who exalt themselves and brings them down. Here's another scenario, another story. God has brought down the, the sons of Eli when they exalted themselves against the Lord. And now God is bringing down this, this rich man who wants to live it like a king. And 10 days later, God brings him down. The Lord knows how to bring down those who exalt themselves. The Lord is a God of great reversals. David because of the intervention of Abigail in the last moment, trusted in the Lord, not to revenge, but to leave that revenge with the Lord. And here now, he hears that the Lord has indeed brought a divine reversal. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Do you see what David bless, blesses God for? Three things. And they're like a burger. Two buns and the meat in between. The two buns are the Lord revenged Nabal for his evil. Number one, the Lord avenged the insult David received from Nabal. Number three, the third one, the Lord returned Nabal's evil on his own head. But in the middle, between those two praises, is the meat of what David thanks the Lord for. The Lord kept David from wrongdoing. David comes to realize that if he had been left to his own devices, to act in his own wisdom in this moment, he would have taken the path of wrongdoing. David comes to realize that he is not a sufficient source in himself 
to be the one who protects himself from acting wickedly. That he does not have the ability in his own strength and wisdom to act rightly in a consistent way. Here's David blessing the Lord for restraining David from acting in a sinful way. Oh, friends, the one who keeps David from falling is not David, but the Lord. I wonder if you come to realize the, the wickedness of the human nature, that no matter how many successes we can have, and no matter how many successes David has had in following the Lord well up to this moment in the book, and boy, the success of chapter 24 was so high. He, he passed that exam with A++. And yet when chapter 25 comes, David is about to fail the exam. And he realizes, if left to my own devices, I would have taken the wrong path. Friends, consider, consider your need, your great need of God who's able to restrain us, to work in us, to restrain us from sin. Jude, verse 24 and 25 says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Consider that phrase. To him who is able to, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Friends, I wonder if you see your great need for a God who is able to restrain you from sin. If he left you and I to our own devices, we would choose to act only in sinful ways. And even if we acted once in a while in a good way, we would not do so consistently. But God is so committed to restrain us from our sins. Friends, God is so committed to restrain us from our sins that he sent Jesus to come and bring an end to the power of sin over us. And the good news of the Bible is that when we hear the news about Jesus, how Jesus came to put an end to sin, how he gave his own body to die on the cross, to be crucified as a substitute for sinners, how God raised Jesus from the dead so that the power of sin might be broken for all those who return away from their sins and trust in Christ to be saved, when we realize and hear the news of that gospel, the Lord works in us a change of heart, a new birth, so that through that new birth, the Lord infuses in us a new nature that now becomes willing and joyful in obeying the commands of God. In the Bible, we often read commands God gives us against sinning in all kinds of ways. Some people may have the impression that when God wrote those commands, that God put the ball in our part, in our court, as if he has done his part, and now it's up to us if we're going to do what he calls us to do. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth of the gospel. Thinking 
that God has done all that he could, and now it's up to us and left to us to do the rest. The Bible tells us not only that we must keep God's commands, the Bible tells us that we cannot keep God's commands if left to ourselves. We must not merely hear that God commands us not to sin. We must hear that God himself must intervene in our lives to restrain us from sinning. This is not to put the blame on God if we keep sinning. This is not to say that if we keep sinning, it's God's problem. It's God's fault. No, not at all. Rather, is to recognize that unless the Lord works in us, we do not have the ability in our own power to restrain ourselves from acting sinfully. And the Lord works in us not only to give Jesus for our salvation, but the Lord works in us to give us the Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of us. And when the Spirit comes to dwell inside of us, He gives us a new birth. You say, how does that happen? It happens through the hearing of the gospel. It happens through the hearing that Jesus died for your sins as a substitute so that all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ are given a new life by the Spirit of God. Oh, friends, if you've never turned to the Lord, perhaps you have tried in the past to turn away from sin and have found yourself so unable to do so. Friends, you cannot turn away from your sin unless you turn to the Lord. The Lord is the one who enables you to turn away from your sin. So don't be so focused on, I just can't get rid of this sin. Turn to the Lord. The Lord is able to restrain you from your sin. Here the story of David points us to the only sure hope that we have for turning us away from our sin. It is not in us, but in the Lord. And friend, I wonder if you trust in your abilities and your power to restrain yourself from sin, or if you recognize your need of the Lord and bless the Lord for being the one who keeps you and enables you to restrain from sin. There's a song that we have learned a few years ago in this church. It's a new song. It's entitled, O Great God. And the first stanza of the song says the following, O Great God of highest heaven, Occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice and sin remain that resist your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Friends, when tempted, keep remembering the Lord. He's able to keep you from falling. Remember what he's working for you. Let's pray.